Hello and welcome to the first ever Propagandopolis podcast. So today I'm speaking with Roland Elliott Brown. He's a London-based writer who the year before last published a book called Godless Utopia, Soviet Anti-Religious Propaganda. It's a beautifully put together book that tells the story of Soviet atheism through seven decades worth of propaganda posters. And it's available to buy on our website now. That's propagandopolis.com. So Roland, I thought we could start this podcast by talking about the origins of the book, specifically about what inspired you to to write it and what sort of background you had and what sort of research you'd done beforehand into the honestly pretty niche topic of Soviet anti-religious propaganda. As near as I'm transparent to myself, it seems to me that this project has something to do with having grown up in North America during the Reagan era. Now, I was born in 1980. I grew up in Canada. Uh, but I think that kind of Reagan era culture was was all defining in, in North America, really. And there were certain memes bubbling up in the culture, you know, when I was still a little kid that I was not aware of at the time. But uh, so in 1983, for example, we had Ronald Reagan's evil empire speech. And uh, in that speech, Reagan centers Lenin's rejection of uh, religious morality in favor of class morality as the source of Soviet unfreedom. And he did that to a a gathering of of evangelicals. So it was kind of um, he was speaking to his his moral majority faction, uh, Christian conservative faction. And then there was an interesting speech that Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave in in London um, on receipt of the Templeton Prize. Uh, in which he he not only centers atheism as the source of all of Russia's catastrophes, but he also he also rejects the Enlightenment. Uh, so whereas whereas Reagan was happy to center Lenin and atheism as as the problem, Solzhenitsyn goes one further and, and he says, well, uh, what about including pursuit of happiness in the U.S. Declaration of Independence? And he so he implicitly drags uh, Thomas Jefferson and the whole European Enlightenment uh, into this this problem of of atheism and tyranny, as he saw it. I don't think anyone ever put quite such a fine point on the matter as Solzhenitsyn did there. And uh, he also laments a blasphemous film being shown in the the, uh, supposedly religious United States. And that, uh, if you read between the lines, it's obviously Monty Python's Life of Brian. I was not conscious of this stuff because I was just a little kid at the time, but it it was a meme that was bubbling up in the culture. And then I became conscious of it after 9-11, when we had uh, a whole bunch of popular atheist tracks by uh, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, uh, and they were all, in a sense, a, re- a reaction to that post-9-11 mood. There was obviously the horror uh, at jihadist terrorism, but there was also resentment of George W. Bush's uh, relationship with with the Christian right. And in the midst of that debate, that debate over over this new popular atheism movement, um, that that old meme from the 80s began to bubble up. And people like Hitchens and Dawkins would find themselves confronted on Fox News by people who who again wanted to center atheism as a, a source of the catastrophes of the 20th century. Cool. So that's what kindled your interest in the topic in the broader sense. So what what inspired you writing this book specifically about Soviet atheism? 
So I think I got into this project in a in a fairly fairly open-minded and inquisitive way. I wanted to investigate this whole Soviet atheism phenomenon, which was extremely low resolution. Like people mention it all the time, but people didn't know anything about it really. Uh, they didn't know it in in detail. They probably knew that. Uh, you know, they knew that so the Soviet Union was officially atheistic. They knew that Karl Marx had said uh, religion was the opium of the people. And, and that was about it. And so I began to, to delve in. And finding the details of this phenomenon was it was a bit tricky because most of the popular histories that you would read of the Soviet Union, they would barely mention it. Uh, it might be a paragraph somewhere. Uh, or it would be mentioned kind of by the by. And there are a few exceptions, like Richard Pipes in his Russia under the Bolshevik regime gives a chapter to it. And of course, he was someone who was who was of the right and, and was a, an advisor to Reagan. But uh, most of the most of the research materials I found were were from sometime during the Soviet period. Uh, there were things that people were writing in the probably mainly in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And so I, I began researching that uh, in the in the early 2010s, and then the guys at Fuel Publishing, who I, I knew because I'd I'd interviewed them for the Moscow Times, and I'd also um, uh, I'd reviewed some of their books. They had they had found or or bought online a bunch of anti Soviet anti religious posters from the 60s to the 80s. And they had they had a notion to do a book based on those, and uh, they asked me to do the writing. And I was I was aware of the the early some of the earlier graphics. I'd become aware of some of the earlier graphics, which I'd, I'd seen in a uh, an exhibition uh, at one point. Uh, and well, I, I immediately saw the foundations of of the themes of the later posters in the earlier ones and, and made a case that, that those should be included. And then the, the, the project evolved along those lines. So I imagine you saw a lot of original copies of these posters when you were researching the book. Yeah, they're fairly easy to come by in libraries in Russia. They're like big, the big libraries, like the, um, the Lenin, the Lenin library in Moscow and the, uh, library of the uh, State Museum of the History of Religions in St. Petersburg, which originally was an official atheist museum. Yeah, definitely. It's really cool seeing all these posters in the flesh. I've only seen, you know, a few exhibitions here in London, uh, most recently at the Royal Academy and the Tate, I think. But they're pretty damn cool. Anyway, so so to move on, you you write in the book about how the Orthodox Church in Russia from sort of Peter the Great onwards, so that's around the 17th, 18th century, was having its authority questioned and challenged by Enlightenment ideas coming predominantly from the West. I was wondering if we could speak a little bit about that and how that would have paved the way for atheism to uh, gain a foothold in certain radical circles in the 19th century. Well, speaking of Solzhenitsyn, uh, in his uh, Templeton speech, he implicitly or or explicitly, I can't remember, he blames uh, Peter the Great for kind of uh, imposing the European Enlightenment from above in Russia. And uh, certainly Peter the Great was responsible for for making the church subordinate to the state, making it um, a tool of his administration. 
So by the early 20th century, the church was more or less entirely subordinate to the Tsarist regime. Yeah, well, uh, do you remember in Animal Farm, uh, Orwell refers to Moses the Raven, who's the representative of the Russian Orthodox Church. He refers to him as a spy and a talebearer. And yeah. so this is this is kind of like the the radical Russian view of uh, of the church. It's a servant of the of the state. Uh, so so that idea was was there. You know, Peter the Great, although he made the church subordinate to himself, he also saw himself as an enlightening figure, someone who was pro, pro-science, pro-enlightenment, and was prepared to uh, impose some of those views from above as well, and to uh, to modernize with a hard hand. And so there are echoes of that in Bolshevism, for sure. That said, in 1917, the church was on the verge of becoming more independent. Uh, because of the revolution, it was able to elect uh, a patriarch for the first time since uh, Peter the Great had abolished the patriarchate. And, um, and so the Bolsheviks faced a stronger and more independent adversary, and within a year, the new patriarch, Tikhon, uh, anathematized the Bolsheviks. Okay, so when did the Russian communist movement begin to become more explicitly associated with atheism? When did atheism begin to emerge as a prominent force in Russian radical politics? Okay, well, atheism comes to Russia through a variety of channels. It it comes to Russia mainly through contact with Western thought. And of course, uh, Russian intellectuals were were back and forth to Western Europe all the time. And uh, so they're influenced by Western thought, particularly thought coming out of German universities, where there's the phenomenon known as uh, higher criticism. That's uh, kind of like advanced textual criticism of the of the Bible, that that area of study gives rise to the group known as the Young Hegelians, uh, which of course is very influential on Marx. Uh, so Marx is not, of course, the first atheistic influence on the Russian intellectuals, but Marx is being influenced in parallel, shall we say. So this 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 German thought, this higher textual criticism, uh, is influencing Marx when he's at university, and it's also influencing Russian intellectuals. Two of the main figures in Russian atheism of the 19th century were two priests' sons, Nikolai Chernyshevsky, Nikolai Dobrolubov, who were the first to deny the existence of God in print. That, that episode is described in a book called Doubt Atheism and the 19th Century Russian Intelligentsia by Victoria Frieda. Uh, so anyone who wants to delve deeper can have a look at that book. So yeah, there, there, there are these parallel influences on, on both Marx and on the Russian intellectuals. And, and of course, when Marx and Engels become aware of uh, Chernyshevsky, they praise his work. Chernyshevsky is a massive influence on Lenin. And uh, Lenin was into Chernyshevsky before he was into Marx. Of course, when he reads Marx, it's, it's just fireworks. So these, these different strands are coming together. Uh, there were other atheistic influences. Of course, uh, Marx's great rival, the anarchist uh, Mikhail Bakunin, was, was a public atheist as well. And of course, those 
Russian intellectuals who were in touch with the West, in touch with Germany. They would have been reading Nietzsche. They would have been reading Schopenhauer. Uh, very interestingly, Nietzsche's work was uh, suppressed and disapproved of in the Soviet Union. Okay, so what did Marx have to say about religion? I know there's that really famous opium of the people quote, but it's often quoted just that line out of context. Um, could we talk a little bit about where what Marx himself said about atheism and the place of religion? So I'll give you a, a reading from Marx's famous uh, introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, in which he refers to the opium of the people. And uh, this reading is slightly abridged. He writes, religious distress is at the same time the expression of real distress and the protest against real distress. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of a spiritless situation. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is required for their real happiness. The demand to give up the illusions about its condition is the demand to give up a condition which needs illusions. Uh, he goes on to say of the criticism of religion, criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers from the chain, not so that man will wear the chain without any fantasy or consolation, but so that he will shake off the chain and cull the living flower. Uh, so this is a philosophy of liberation. This is, this is from his early life. This is from the, the young Hegelian phase. Marx of Capital, decades later, writes that what he calls humanity's religious reflex will vanish only when, quote, the practical relations of everyday life offer to man none but perfectly intelligible and reasonable relations with regard to his fellow men and to nature. So in the first quote, you have this idea of the abolition of religion being necessary for people's happiness. And in Capital, you have this idea that once everything's great, religion will disappear by itself. And you can see the tension that this sets up for the Bolsheviks, because the persistence of religion as a phenomenon then becomes a test for their own success. So if religion persists, it means that they're failing. They're failing to create a utopia. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, you know, because obviously um, most people associate Marx's writings on religion with that early opium of the people passage. I didn't realise that there was a sort of second phase, if you will, to his to his attitudes on religion. Um, so I was wondering if we could sort of jump ahead a few decades now and start talking about the Bolsheviks in power or how they seize power and the sort of anti-religious propagandising that went along with that. Okay, so let's dive into the the moment after the uh, the October Revolution. So atheism is synonymous with Bolshevism. They're very closely tied together, and the atheist agenda is it's even a little bit higher on the Bolshevik agenda than than you might expect. So the early years of the Bolshevik project are marked by the Russian Civil War, uh, the Civil War against the whites who are trying to crush the revolution, uh, and there's massive internal conflict between the Bolsheviks and religious believers and also between the Bolsheviks and the, uh, the newly elected uh, patriarch, uh, Tikhon, who is not happy with the fratricidal situation uh, in the country and who anathematized the Bolsheviks. 
Yeah, and isn't there that book that you mentioned in Godless Utopia, uh, co-authored by uh, Bukharin, the old Bolshevik, that sort of explains early Soviet anti-religious propaganda? There's a fascinating text which appears around 1920 by two leading Bolsheviks, Nikolai Bukharin and Yevgeny Priyabrzhensky, who incidentally uh, were later killed in Stalin's terror. The ABC of Communism is a commentary on the first Bolshevik Party program, 1919, and it lays out the beginnings of a philosophy of so Soviet atheist propaganda strategy. And I'm going to read you a couple of excerpts from the ABC of Communism. Uh, the authors write, It is essential at the present time to wage with the utmost vigor the war against religious prejudices, for the church has now definitely become a counter-revolutionary organization and endeavors to use its religious influence over the masses in order to marshal them for the political struggle against the dictatorship of the proletariat. The orthodox faith, which is defended by the priests, aims at an alliance with the monarchy. This is why the Soviet power finds it necessary to engage at this juncture in widespread anti-religious propaganda. Our aims can be secured by the delivery of special lectures, by the holding of debates, and by the publication of suitable literature, also by the general diffusion of scientific knowledge, which slowly but surely undermines the authority of religion. Then they go on to describe uh, a fascinating episode that took place in the early days of the revolution, where the Bolsheviks would go into churches and they would smash open uh, what were called relics. These were the, the bodies of uh, saints, which were believed not to decay, and, and they would expose them to the public. So uh, here the authors are writing about this in the ABC of Communism. They write, an excellent weapon in the fight with the church was used recently in many parts of the Republic when the shrines were opened to show the, quote, incorruptible relics. This served to prove to the wide masses of the people, and precisely to those in whom religious faith was strongest, the base trickery upon which religion in general and the creed of the Russian Orthodox Church in particular are grounded. So this, uh, this grisly image of, of caskets being bro broken open as a spectacle for the public uh, found its way into... Uh, Soviet propaganda graphics. So there's one image, uh, for example, from Godless Machine magazine, 1924. It's called The Imperishable Ones, or it could be The Incorruptibles. And it shows God, at a, looks like he's at a table, and at the table are, are the skeletons and mummies of these saints. And uh, he says that they've let him down. He says, you've let me down, my minions. I'm ashamed to be seen on earth now. And around the table, um, well, these figures are all names. They're all, they're all figures from, from Orthodox tradition and lore. And uh, this, this idea of the mummies uh, also comes into the design of the book, because if you look at the cover of the book, you have this uh, skeletal figure cloaked in, in, in kind of the generic robes of faith, and he's he's some he's reaching in a menacing way for this this gilded hammer and sickle, and uh, well that's that's a clear homage to to that image and to this uh, early Bolshevik scheme of uh, of showing off these these corpses and mummies. 
Yeah, well, it's a beautifully designed book. And if we can afford to go on a quick digression, maybe we could talk about the design of the book, actually, and um, and how the Soviet posters from the period kind of inspired it. The design of the book, which is by my collaborators at Fuel Publishing, really references uh, religious publishing in a lot of creative ways. So, for example, this, uh, this gilded hammer and sickle, well... It makes you think a little bit of the gilded designs on a Bible or the black edged pages. It makes you think of the, the colored edged pages uh, on religious texts and Bibles. So uh, there's all kinds of um, uh, advanced design thinking going into making the book uh, an attractive object. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's this beautiful book. It looks like loads of thought went into it. Um, to quickly return to the to the posters, there's another one from around the early 20s that kind of relates to the, what we were talking about with the exhumed mummies. And it's that one of sort of Jesus's corpse is kind of blue and there are lots of people gnawing at it. Could we talk a little bit about that one? Because it's definitely the most striking from the early period, I think. It's a horror movie image. It's it's profoundly grisly. Uh, so there's a dead Christ lying on the ground, and the peasants are, are stripping his flesh and pulling out his guts and gnawing his body and taking away one of his arms and gathering blood that's pouring out of his side. And this uh, this gory image is really atypical. Yeah, definitely, it's it's unique among all of the posters from that period for for how graphic it is. And I think in the book, or maybe in a in a previous podcast I listened to, you say that it's almost just a a way of boasting of the Soviets' power and and sort of the church's relative weakness. So this image is um, it's really a provocation, and uh, well, a display of power in a way. Uh, there was concern among the Bolsheviks, even early on, as early as 1919, uh, about offending religious believers. There was a, a lot of back and forth about the about the risks associated with offending religious believers. And one idea was that offending religious believers led to religious fanaticism. In other words, it didn't serve the interests of the party. And that conversation went on and on. Uh, throughout the Soviet period, went back and forth. Uh, but this is probably the most intentionally offensive image in the book. And it's on one level, it's a satire of communion and this idea that communion contains within it uh, the principle of cannibalism. But it also, the, the really horrifying thing about it is that it seems to be an allusion to the, the terrible famine, uh, so-called Volga famine, although it was actually a famine uh, across much of the Soviet Union, which which had led to cannibalism. Uh, there'd been all this all this grain requisitioning during the Civil War. Uh, there'd been famine just because of the conditions of the Civil War as well, and uh, the peasantry was in in absolutely dire and terrible situation. There were instances of cannibalism across the country, and this seems almost to to mock their suffering and to and to blame Christianity for this cannibalism crisis. And the Bolsheviks intentionally used this famine against the church. They used it as a pretext to seize church valuables and sell them abroad, ostensibly to pay for famine relief, but in fact, 
there was there was more foreign aid coming into the into the Russian ports uh, from the American Relief Administration, among others, uh, than than they could move across the country. So it was a false pretext. And well, Richard Pipe suggests that it's it's wrapped up with with the need to pay off debts. The, the Genoa conference is coming up at that time. So Lenin and the Bolsheviks were beginning to antagonize and demonize the church on the grounds that they were creating the conditions for famine or exacerbating them. And the Soviets used this as a rationale to appropriate the church's wealth. Is that correct? So um, amidst this, this nationwide famine and the conflicts with believers over the seizure of church property, uh, Lenin consciously decided to use the phenomenon of cannibalism against the church. Uh, there was a document which is not in his not in his collected writings, which was revealed by by some emigre magazine in the 1970s. After a conflict, uh, a well-known conflict between religious believers defending their church and the Bolsheviks who went to seize church property, Lenin wrote uh, in a, an internal memo. Uh, I believe that here our enemy commits a major blunder, trying to engage us in a decisive struggle when for him it is especially hopeless and especially inconvenient. It is now and only now when in the regions afflicted by the famine there is cannibalism and the roads are littered with hundreds if not thousands of corpses that we can and therefore must pursue the acquisition of values with the most ferocious and merciless energy, stopping at nothing and suppressing all resistance. So the famine is an opportunity to smash the church. Which the, the Bolsheviks promptly do. Um, I was wondering if we could move on to start talking about the two magazines that emerged in the early 20s, Godless and Godless at the Machine. They were the sort of two primary anti-religious propaganda organs of, of the early Soviet regime and they formed the bulk of the posters that are exhibited in, in Godless Utopia, at least in the first half. So could we talk a little bit about them? Yeah, there's a curious history surrounding these these magazines. They both started around the same time. I think there was a, a newspaper called Godless in uh, maybe 1922. Then this color magazine uh, called Godless appears. This is the one that has the, the the cannibalism image, and and then there's there's a wrangle over the name between two two editors. So there's Kostyolo- Maria Kostyolovskaya, the full color magazine, and then there is a guy named Emilian Yaroslavsky, uh, who was quite close to Stalin. I think he had launched the newspaper, and then he launched a competing publication around. Uh, 1924 or five, I can't remember, and um, and so there was a there was a battle over over the name of this magazine, and it was kind of like a, a Python-esque battle between ideological atheists in the early Soviet state, and um, eventually Yaroslavsky won that one. So Kostyolovskaya had to change the name of her publication to Bezbojnik Ustanka. So it's something like uh, Godless at the Machine, or sometimes translated as Godless at the Workbench or Godless at the Machine Tool. I uh, decided to keep it brief in my translation. Yeah, Python-esque, I like that. I imagine there are a lot of similar sort of Python-esque tussles over names in the early Soviet Union. Um, so if I remember correctly, these two publications were merged together in the late 20s. I think, I think 
Godless at the machine was all forcibly merged with Godless, if that's correct. Yeah, they were they were folded together in the early thirties, I think. Okay, and and while they were both existing in a sort of rivalry, I know they competed for you know the artistic talent of the day. Chief among which was Dimitri Moore. Who is he was an artist from the revolutionary period, and then he he's, his career was sort of established in the twenties, I believe. And his pieces appear very prominently in the first half of Godless Utopia. So I was wondering if we could speak a little bit about him. Yeah, so Dimitri Moore was the the main anti-religious artist, the best known anti-religious artist of the Soviet period. Uh, Moore, as you'll probably guess, is not a Russian surname. Uh, it actually comes from a, a play by Schiller called The Robbers. So the Moore is a character in this play, and that was one of, that was his socialist uh, nom de guerre. And um, well, there's a great quote from from Dmitry Moore, who was, a, by the way, a total gun for hire, not not someone whose views could be discerned from his work. So, for example, if you go to the Tate Modern in London, they sell a poster uh, by Dmitry Moore where he he's appealing to uh, the Muslims of the Caucasus to, to join the communist cause. And uh, that was from the Civil War period. Uh, and at the same time, He's also the most prominent atheistic atheistic artist of the early Soviet period. Yeah, I actually remember seeing that that Muslim propaganda poster, or rather, propaganda poster calling on on the Muslims to aid the revolution. Uh, it's a characteristically colourful piece. Um, so, anyway, you were saying that there was a quote from Dmitry Moore that kind of captures all of his philosophy towards propaganda and and his his mission as a propagandist. So here's here's a a translation of Dimitri Moore talking about his his kind of mission statement as a as a Stalinist atheist propagandist. He says everywhere the poster powerfully demands attention and speaks to the topic of the day. It bristles, castigates, illuminates, carries to action, reveals the task at hand and the widest horizons of socialist construction. The poster activates the builders of socialism and infuriates the class enemy. So there's that idea of dominance. So you think of, if you think of that, uh, that cannibalism poster, it's, it's an assertion of, of dominance over people who can't really fight back. One of the really typical Moore images, which is from 1923, it was on the cover of the color magazine Godless, later Godless at the Machine, uh, and it shows a worker climbing into the heavens uh, to smash a bunch of deities with his hammer. Uh, below him, on the left, there are the factory smokestacks, that's the sign of progress, and uh, below him to the right uh, is... Uh, are the ruins of uh, religious temples. Uh, I see a synagogue, I see a church, and I see a mosque uh, all down there together. And uh, the slogan on top says, we finished the earthly czars and we're coming for the heavenly ones. Uh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a mission statement of Soviet atheism right there. Uh, and it also carries premonitions of the... Uh, the space race, this idea of 
storming the heavens uh, becomes important when the Soviets start to get into space. So I guess it's prophetic in that sense. Uh, so while we're talking about these representations of the different deities, uh, along with this worker storming the heavens, uh, we should take a moment to think about the representation of Islam in in these cartoons, because, of course, Islam-related cartoons are always in the news these days. And uh, one curious thing I found or didn't find while I was doing this research was that, well, there didn't seem to be any Muhammad cartoons in in the Soviet anti-religious magazines. There were kind of generic representations of an Islamic god or Allah, but there were there were no uh, depictions of Muhammad or nothing that I could definitively say was a depiction of Muhammad. And uh, well, in one review in the critic magazine, Giles Udi uh, falsely claimed that there were Muhammad cartoons in the book, which I thought was uh, dangerous and irresponsible. And I had to write in to get that corrected. But it raises an interesting question, which is how uh, Fuel Publishing and I would have handled that had it come up. Because in the context of a historical study, if we had found some graphically interesting depiction of Muhammad, um, from the point of view of a historical study, it would, would have been perfectly legitimate to, to include it. But at the same time, we would have had to have a very serious conversation about, um, well, about the risks involved. It, it is interesting that the, that, that didn't come up. And the, the depictions of Islam in the book, they tend always to focus either on kind of foolish and ridiculous mullahs misleading the people or uh, or the oppression of women. Yeah, it's something you wouldn't really think about, would you, with Soviet propaganda, anti-religious propaganda? Um, did you ever encounter any sort of written content in these magazines about Muhammad or was it just completely off limit? I did come across some articles in the Soviet magazines uh, discussing whether Muhammad had existed, but those were not heavily illustrated. Interesting. Um, so I was, I was wondering if we could move on to the t- late 20s and 30s, the Stalinist period, um, the godless and godless and machine have obviously merged and the focus of atheist propaganda is beginning to shift. By the late 1920s and early 30s, uh, Stalin is consolidating power as uh, general secretary. Uh, he's setting himself up as uh uh, as, the, as the long-term dictator of the Soviet state. And at the same time, it's becoming apparent that this Bolshevik idea of triggering a world revolution that's going to be sympathetic uh, to the Soviets, that's, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It's not as if the industrialized Western European countries are going to join this project now. So Stalin is battening down for kind of resentful isolation. And he's concerned about... The weakness of the Soviet state, uh, which is not heavily industrialized, and he's fearful of foreign intervention and fearful of the rising threat of fascism as well. In 1930, Pope Pius XI declared a, a crusade of prayer against the Soviet state, against Soviet atheism. And, uh, well, if we consider what fascism was in the early days, you know, Nazism slightly complicates the picture, 
uh, later on. But in the early days, fascism is the Catholic far right. There, there, there's this fear of a crusade, and then crusade becomes the becomes one of the central themes of the anti-religious propaganda, uh, which also taps into kind of cultural memory about conflicts between the Orthodox and the Catholics, uh, although I don't think that's particularly intentional at this stage. So what sort of thematic changes are happening in Soviet anti-religious propaganda around this time? By the 1930s, the anti-religious propaganda really congeals into three main themes. It's the fear of foreign intervention, uh, often bound up with, uh, with the Catholic Church. There's collectivization of agriculture and the idea that enemies of the revolution are trying to prevent the collectivization of agriculture, which really means forcing peasants onto collective farms and controlling their grain so that they can't sell it and set their own prices. And, uh, and then industrialization, the spectacle of building uh, the Soviet Union up into a, a great industrial power that can compete with the Western powers in producing industrial goods, uh, developing the society, and, uh, of course, building war material. And it's also important to remember that in 1933, there was a concordat between the Nazi regime and the Vatican. And then in 1937, uh, Pope Pius issues a, uh, an encyclical uh, condemning Bolshevistic and atheistic communism. Yeah, well, to quickly return to the theme of industrialization, I, I, I know there's a poster in your book that shows sort of a, a massive hydroelectric dam just washing away all of these religious figures like priests and mullahs and, and rabbis. Could we talk quickly about that piece before moving on? There's an issue of the magazine Godless dated 1930, uh, which really exemplifies the use of industrial imagery. It's quite a gloomy cover. Uh, it's all in, in blues and grays and black. And uh, it shows a big dam. And in the background, you have black smokestacks spewing up black smoke. Then in the lower left-hand corner of the image, you have a priest, a mullah, and a rabbi being swept through a dam sluice. So it's like it's like a bad joke. Yeah, an awful joke. Um, and there's one little guy in the bottom left. I can't really identify him. He's sort of wearing a suit, and I presume he's just uh, some sort of generic capitalist or something. Uh, a generic, generic enemy of the revolution. But this is all a euphemism for murder. Uh, of course, there's going to be mass murder of clergy throughout the 1930s. Yeah, and, and in this sort of renewed wave of religious persecution, it wasn't just Orthodox priests that sort of featured as, as the saboteurs. They began to focus a little bit on the religious enemies abroad, namely the Catholic Church. I know there's one that I've got in front of me here. And it sort of shows the Catholic, the, the Pope, sorry, hiding behind a church with his gigantic tongue out. And he looks a bit, he looks a bit monstrous. Could we talk quickly about this piece? Because it seems to be the poster that features the Catholic Church most prominently as, as a foreign menace. So as regards perception of a foreign threat, there is a poster dated 1932 uh, under the headline, Priestly Rhetoric is an Enemy Weapon. And this focuses on a Soviet interpretation of an alliance between fascism and the foreign clergy. So you've got the, the Pope preaching and you've got other uh, religious figures uh, preaching beside him. You've got uh, 
priests praying to a golden capitalist sitting on a safe. And then you've got uh, a kind of bayonet charge led by the international clergy, backed by a cannon-wielding capitalist. And so you've got uh, a Catholic priest, an Orthodox priest, an Islamic mullah, and even uh, a Jewish rabbi uh, involved in this bayonet charge with uh, fascists. And in fact, the rabbi absurdly is pictured next to um, a swastika-waving Nazi. And this shows what absurd contortions the Soviet atheist ideology was getting into uh, at this stage uh, where the Nazi persecution of the Jews was something that just didn't fit the ideological framework, and and so it's totally ignored. Uh, Curiously, the piece also carries a a poem by a a lousy communist poet named Demyan Biedny, whose name, Biedny means poor in Russian, whose name is the inspiration for uh, the atheist poet Ivan Homeless in Mikhail Bulgakov's Master and Margarita. There's another image from... 1934, Godless Magazine, true face of the Catholic Church. And uh, it shows a skull that is uh, has spider legs and a Pope hat, and there are burning bodies in the background. Uh, of course, the, the Soviets were very interested in uh, the Catholic Inquisition's burning of scientists because they saw themselves as friends of science. And uh, in the in the right hand, lower right-hand corner, you've got Nazis burning Marx, burning copies of books by Marx and Lenin and Darwin. And um, also in the background, you have people being hung from nooses, which which may be a reference to to fascism. And that that taps into all of the fear of a of a, a Western crusade against the Soviet state, uh, influenced by the Catholic Church. Yeah, and this crusade obviously came in 1941, although it wasn't led by the Catholic Church. It was it was obviously the Nazi invasion. And during the war, Soviet anti-religious propaganda essentially ceased, due in large part to pressure from the Soviet Union's newfound allies, especially the Roosevelt administration. Could we talk a little bit about that? Okay, so here, here's an interesting quote. This was issued by the... Uh, by the Roosevelt administration in the U.S. uh, right after the Germans had invaded Russia in June 1941. And it was a message about the importance of religious freedom. Uh, The statement says, freedom to worship God as their consciences dictate is the great and fundamental right of all peoples. This right has been denied to their peoples by both the Nazi and Soviet governments. To the people of the United States, this and other principles and doctrines of communistic dictatorship are as intolerable and as alien to their own beliefs as are the principles and doctrines of Nazi dictatorship. There was a lot of pressure from the Roosevelt administration to abandon this ideology and this anti-religious ideology. And uh, Roosevelt, I think, was, uh, well, he was deeply religious. He was He felt personally offended by this anti-religious project, and uh, he applied pressure on the Soviets to to abandon it. 
At the same time, when the Germans began to move into former Soviet-held territory, they also began to open churches as a propaganda strategy, or at least the Wehrmacht, uh, the Wehrmacht did. There were all kinds of competing strategies among the Germans. They were they were flying blind into Russia. Really, they hadn't they hadn't worked out they hadn't worked out really what their policy to the region was. Uh, so there were there were all kinds of conflicting things going on, but this like reopening uh, of churches was one thing that that the Germans were trying to win over local pop- populations, and so I suppose Stalin felt he had to compete with that as well. Yeah, and on the topic of uh, the the Nazis reopening churches, I remember reading in Godless Utopia that the Nazis had been courting Orthodox support uh, even since the the twenties. That's true. Well, there were, there was a there was a profoundly anti-Semitic Orthodox right that uh, had gone into exile after the Russian Revolution. And uh, so some of the chief German ideologists, uh, Nazi ideologists like Alfred Rosenberg, were in touch with these people. I see. Interesting. Um, to, to jump back forward to the Second World War in the Soviet Union, anti-religious propagandizing was toned down or stopped entirely. But Stalin didn't permit a full revival of religious life in the USSR, did he? Uh, no, I mean, what happened was he he allowed some seminaries to reopen. He allowed some churches to reopen. Uh, he allowed religious life to resurface. But I think even so, if you were outwardly religious, uh, you were you were not going to be seen as a good communist. So I'm sure there were there were many calculations left to be made. I see, and. And during the war, there was more or less no anti-religious propaganda being published. I, I think, if I remember correctly, Godless magazine stopped publishing maybe even a few days after the German invasion in 1941. Uh, the magazine Godless ceased publication, as far as I can tell, the month the Germans invade, invaded. It, it was seen as, as not serving the war effort. Okay, and this this lull in anti-religious propaganda lasted until the late 50s. Um, So if we could just fast forward a a decade or so to Stalin's death, could you explain what was happening in the Soviet Union then and sort of set the scene for the second wave? So between the end of the war and Stalin's death, anti-religious repression tends to focus mainly on minorities. So you have the uh, expulsion of the Chechens, who Stalin accused of supporting the Germans. Uh, You have the smashing of the Ukrainian Uniate Church and the destruction of its membership, and you have the anti-Semitic campaign. You also have the pressing into service of the Orthodox clergy as critics of American foreign policy. So the new job of the Orthodox clergy is to speak publicly against U.S. foreign policy, and they do that, for example, against the American military efforts uh, in Korea. For example, the Russian Orthodox clergy critique the Americans very severely over the Korean War, and 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 that's that's where things sit until uh, Stalin's death and the rise of Nikita Khrushchev. I see. So the so Stalin's death and the sort of subsequent denunciation of him in the in the secret speech kind of signals a new stage in Soviet anti-religious propaganda. Is that right? Yeah, so after Stalin's death, Nikita Khrushchev denounced uh, Stalin's legacy, accused Stalin of trying to turn himself into a god, denounced the so-called cult of personality, 
This was his uh, his 1956 secret speech, and there followed a so-called thaw. People were being let out of the gulag camps. Intellectual life of the Soviet Union was becoming a bit more open. Um, but the thaw did not apply to religious life. On the contrary, since atheism was such a marker of Bolshevism and the Russian Revolution, and since Stalin was portrayed as having deviated from that, uh, a return to atheism uh, was a, a claim to legitimacy for the Communist Party. And so they returned to atheist propaganda, particularly heavily in 1959, uh, just a couple of years after Sputnik went up, uh, which meant that uh, atheist propaganda became closely bound up with the space race. Also in 1959, there was a new anti-religious magazine launched called Science and Religion. That was a, a black and white magazine. It was illustrated, but the illustrations are not particularly remarkable, so they weren't included in this book. So this new wave of, of propaganda starts in around 1959 and lasts on and off until the sort of late 80s. Could we talk about the, the, the imagery and shift of focus in this propaganda? Because it's very distinct from the sort of stuff that we were seeing in the 20s and 30s, certainly less graphic. So this new anti-religious propaganda imagery that starts in 1959 carries on uh, in various forms uh, until the early 1980s or the mid-1980s. It really collapses around 1986 with the, the beginnings of Glasnost, and then the nail in the coffin uh, was the 1988 millennium celebrations because the um, Russian Orthodoxy had begun in Kievan Rus' in 988. So 1988 was the thousand-year anniversary and the, the Orthodox Church was allowed to celebrate that in the Bolshoi Theater, and they were allowed to celebrate it in collaboration with uh, stars of the Soviet stage and screen. And uh, this was partly because Gorbachev needed all the support he could get for Glasnost, and uh, turning to religious believers was one way to get additional support, and of course the support he needed was against the, the Soviet hardliners, who opposed his reforms. But even in the years leading up to Glasnost, you see a new type of Soviet atheist propaganda, which is not as, certainly nowhere near as harsh and gruesome as the early stuff, but it's satirical and it tends to, it tends to mock fashion and Western influence. And uh, so, for example, there's one image of a guy who looks kind of slightly Jesus-like in ridiculous sunglasses, wearing crucifixes around his neck, and he's selling icons and, uh, and, and crucifixes, possibly on the black market. And uh, he's seen as a disreputable character. There's another scene of a hipster guy walking on the beach with a, a giant crucifix around his neck. Uh, the image is actually a parody of uh, a famous Russian painting, Alexander Ivanov's Appearance of Christ Before the People. The emphasis is on, is on appearance and fashion and of course, in the in the late Soviet period, adopting religious symbols was it was like a sign of rebellion. It was almost like um, 
it was almost like, like wearing a punk outfit in London or something like that. Yeah, well, the general tone of the of this wave of propaganda definitely seems a lot more playful than the sort of stuff you're seeing in the 20s where where religious believers and authorities tend to figure more as, you know, sort of sinister and scheming counter-revolutionaries and, and vermin. Uh, it's definitely a, a lot more sort of pointed in the 20s. Um, th- there's also a subgenre within the second wave which tends to show cosmonauts denouncing or denying the existence of God, the most famous of which is one from the mid-70s, which shows a cosmonaut floating up in space, cheerily declaring that there are no gods. Um, Can we speak about that poster? Because it's certainly one of the most famous from this period, if not the most famous. Yeah, this image, which uh, is dated 1975, well, what it suggests to me is a kind of medieval conception of the sky, the firmament. And uh, it's not really clear to me why having an astronaut in space means that there's no God. It's, it seems like a little bit of a non sequitur, you know, just as just as the Soviet cosmonauts uh, were expected to state their atheism, well, the, Russia, the American astronauts uh, were, were always talking about their faith. Uh, so it's a it's a curious non sequitur, but as a as a piece of design, it 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 just kind of it just kind of works. The thing to remember about this is that uh, you see these various temples at the bottom of the page. This this really symbolizes a kind of human rights catastrophe with uh, religious congregations across the across the union being often broken up by very very sleazy and dishonest means by the Communist Party. Uh, and sometimes having the having the, the physical buildings destroyed as well. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot going on in this poster. Do, do you think that the cosmonaut that features in it is Yuri Gagarin or just maybe a, a generic, you know, cosmonaut? Yeah, people tend to assume that this uh, cosmonaut is is Yuri Gagarin. Well, he's kind of a generic cosmonaut, but it's worth mentioning that uh, the most vocal of the atheist cosmonauts was... Um, was actually the second uh, Soviet cosmonaut to orbit the Earth, and that was uh, German Titov. German Titov went to the Seattle World's Fair in 1962 and uh, told the Americans he'd seen no no god or angels in space. Interesting. So, so this Soviet propaganda, Soviet anti-religious propaganda, was on the wane and more or less finished by the mid 1980s. Is that is that correct? Yeah, there were some interesting cultural milestones in the late uh, or in the mid 1980s. So, for example, there was a novel published uh, by Chingiz Aitmatov, well-known Soviet writer, uh, called The Scaffold, and that was full of religious themes, and it had been very criticized in the communist press. But uh, the debate surrounding that novel was was a milestone, and then. Uh, and then Yevgeny Yevtushenko, the Glasnost-supporting poet, wrote an article about how about how young Soviet citizens couldn't understand literature properly because they couldn't read the Bible, and uh, that it really ought to be easy to get the Bible and read it and uh, just become cultured as a result. Yeah, so there were all of these cultural shifts and as you explained earlier the sort of newly emboldened orthodox church that was able to celebrate its millennium in the bolshoi theater all of this sort of 
you know, conspired to end the Soviets' propaganda, anti-religious propaganda regime. Uh, anyway, I thought we could wrap this podcast up with a short discussion about what sort of what sort of place this book occupies in the current political and intellectual climate. You told me at the start of this podcast that the first stirrings of the book emerged a decade or so ago when the new atheists were at their zenith and everybody was talking about atheism again. How do you think it fits into the early 2020s? Uh, almost a century on from the first wave of of Soviet anti-religious propaganda. So before I started work on this book, uh, I was working on Iran as a journalist. Uh, I traveled to Iran uh, in 2008 and 2011, so I knew a little bit about the country. And uh, I was writing about Iranian affairs, uh, including the human rights situation, One of the issues that came up there was the situation of the Baha'is, who are the largest religious minority uh, in Iran, who are not properly recognized and are very badly treated. They have their their shops closed, their graveyards smashed up, they're not allowed to get university education. So that was in the back of my mind when I started working on this. And um, around that time, we had the rise of ISIS as well, and um, the horrible atrocities against uh, religious minorities uh, across the territory they controlled. Also, Also, there was the Uyghur situation in China. So these were all kind of on my radar uh, when I was writing. And I sometimes wonder what the the trickle-down effect of the popular atheism of the post-9-11 era has been. So now I'm sure that if Christopher Hitchens were alive today, he would be at the forefront of standing up for groups like the Uyghurs and the Yazidis, at least from a human rights point of view. Uh, but maybe the trickle-down effect, the, the kind of dumbed-down, refined or, or unrefined version of that popular atheism, is that the rights of these, these minorities are a little bit of a tough sell for, for Western liberals who've, who've kind of moved on from religion. And that, that's something that, that I do think about. And um, I do regard this question primarily from a human rights point of view. Yeah, well, obviously the new atheist movement has sort of not only long fizzled out, but has actually suffered a bit of, of pushback in recent years, especially it seems from the followers of, of Jordan Peterson and sort of similar personalities. I, I, I know I, I saw your tweet recently about how Peterson is an admirer and I think even a collector of, of Soviet propaganda and art. So I was aware of Jordan Peterson when I was uh, working on the book and I was listening to some of his lectures in my spare time. In a sense, I feel like Christopher Hitchens and Jordan Peterson can be seen as like uh, pop cultural bookends uh, to the project. And um, well, I suppose Jordan Peterson deserves some credit for repopularizing Russian literature for a new generation. And uh, he certainly seems to be drawn to what we call the Slavophile authors, so the the Orthodox conservatives in in the Russian tradition, uh, like uh, Solzhenitsyn and Dostoevsky. 
And um, he also seems to be profoundly formed by the Reagan era. So I guess he would have been a young man at the time Reagan became president. He probably would have been uh, quite impressionable at the time of Ronald Reagan's evil empire speech. And uh, I think he does bear those influences. And uh, I think he's also a bearer of that meme that we talked about earlier on, that kind of uh, atheism equals tyranny meme, uh, which comes off the back of both Reagan's evil empire speech and uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, Templeton Fry's speech. The interesting thing is that those are not exactly the same meme because, of course, Reagan was working within the framework of the U.S. Constitution, which uh, is fundamentally an Enlightenment document, whereas Solzhenitsyn uh, was drawing on a Slavophile tradition which was counter-Enlightenment. And those amb ambiguities are fascinating to me. And if I ever have a chance to speak to Jordan Peterson, I would like to drill down on those, uh, those ambiguities uh, and perhaps build a discussion of them off the back of this book. Yeah, we should see if we could mobilise the propagandopolis army to get his attention and, and try and arrange a little a little discussion between the two of you. Anyway, Roland, uh, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's, it's been fascinating and it's surely a subject that warrants many more hours of discussion. I'm sure all of my listeners are going to go and buy your book immediately at propagandopolis.com. Thanks again, Roland. So that was Roland Elliot Brown speaking with me. He's a London-based writer and he can be found on Twitter at Roland E. Brown. You can also find him on Instagram at Roland Elliot Brown or on Facebook with the Godless Utopia Facebook page. Thank you to everyone listening to this debut episode of the Propagandopolis podcast. Uh, we're probably going to come up with a catchier name in the future, but... For the time being, we'll just stick with Propagandopolis podcast. Uh, we've also set up a Patreon. So that's patreon.com forward slash Propagandopolis. Uh, we intend to do many more of these as well as uh, start doing some videos on YouTube. And we're also working on a few publications at the moment. So keep your eyes peeled. If you'd like to buy yourself a copy of Roland's book, Godless Utopia, we have a limited number available on the website at the moment, propagandopolis.com. And if you don't already, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Propagandopolis. Thanks again for listening.